for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. <coughs> Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there. The Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. <laughs> Brilliant. That's got the hardest bit done. I know this morning, uh, uh, a lot of the time I'm teaching my grandmother to suck eggs. Uh, uh, I, I'm not sort of ignorant of the fact that you do know plenty of the scriptures and the gospel. I doubt I was telling many people much new about Jesus. Uh, but actually, in one sense, I'm not sure how much Paul thought he was telling the Philippians something new about Jesus. It was just living it out that's the battle. Uh, and uh, the same is going to be true of this session. We'll talk about the gospel, uh, and many of you can sort of nod now, and you, you know, you know it, you know, you know. Yes, but it's actually the battle to live it out. I find as I go on in the Christian life, it's not actually the new things that are the really striking thing for me. It's actually I need to be reminded of the old truths, Sunday school lesson number one, uh, because I keep uh, failing to live that out. And Paul's very conscious of this as he writes to the Philippians. You see how chapter 3 began. It says, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. I'm quite happy to keep to writing the gospel. I love to tell people about Jesus. Uh, and it's a safeguard for you. Uh, the day we think, yeah, we've got all that sorted, uh, please give us something uh, higher, different, further on, is the day when all the danger... Uh, signs should be flashing uh, and we need to be very careful. Um, so look, uh, let me start this way. 
Um, you know that saying, it's who you know that counts. Um, it's one of those terrible verdicts on an institution or group, isn't it? It smacks of something that's unfair, exclusive. You know, it doesn't matter what you've done, it's who you know that counts here. For all the best efforts of HR and safeguarding, uh, you know, how did he get the job? Oh, wake up, he's the chairman's nephew. You know, it's who you know that counts here. Or why does she get the perks? Well, she and the boss were at school together. It's who you know that counts. Unjust, unfair, exclusive, yeah, yeah, but too often a fact of life, isn't it? And, and then we discover, as we uh, read this chapter, that when it comes to the Christian gospel, it's who you know that counts too. Yet there's a very different flavor here. It's actually inclusive, not exclusive. It's open to all and any. It's not restricted to a privileged few. And yet at the heart of this gospel, there's a relationship that opens the door to everything else, what Paul describes as the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And as the apostle wrestles with different spiritualities, he explains the choices that shape his life and he hopes ours, this relationship is the key, so much so that he won't swap it for anything. And when he begins the chapter by saying, rejoice in the Lord, you know, it's not the song leader announcing the next hymn we're going to sing. It's an encouragement to see what he sees in Jesus, to have my confidence, my hope, my heart set on him and not pulled anywhere else. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a call for the Philippians and for us because we're kind of reading the letter over their shoulders, so to speak, to recognize the relationship at the heart of this chapter, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And even in this whistle-stop tour, you can't miss that there's a darker mood in this chapter, a danger not just from pressure and persecution from outside. There are seductive voices whispering on the inside too. And they can sound plausible. They can look impressive. They can dry up my joy in the Lord all at the same time. And that's why he warns so strongly in verse 2, watch out for the dogs. Now, it's nothing to do with your Labrador. You're okay. Uh, that's, well, there are some kind of dogs that you'd say watch out for. But no, what's here is it's not the language of the gutter press either. Uh, it's dogs was a term that Jews used for Gentiles, for the not the people of God people. Now it's being turned on them for evildoers. Not headline monsters, but evil is what turns me away from God. And you can do that religiously. You don't even have to be an atheist, and they weren't. Mutilators of the flesh. He's referring to circumcision. To a group who will be saying, it's wonderful you know Jesus, but if you really want to know God, well, you'll take his mark for yourself. Uh, this is what really makes you one of the people of God. It's that kind of inner ring that comes along. Yeah, yeah, we all believe in Jesus, but the real Christian is. You, know, you do that, you have this sign, you join that group. And Paul says of them, all it does is mutilate the flesh. 
It doesn't bring you to God. Just like today, the religious world then was full of competing spiritualities. And many hate to distinguish, you know, we wish that the choices could always be both and, not either or. But it's as Paul rejects the alternatives that we see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He faces up to three different choices and he plumps for Jesus every time. Here's the first of them. Uh, which gain? Which profit? That's verses 4 to 8. Verse 4, if someone else thinks they have reasons for confidence in the flesh, uh, he's talking of something about me, my background, my service, my achievement that gives me a lever with God. Uh, you know, I'm this, that, and I've done this, that, and the other. Well, says Paul, if someone thinks like that, I've got more reason. And verses 5 to 6 is like a game of, well, how can I put it, spiritual top trumps. You know that game? My grandchildren play it quite often. They've got a, a version with fish. You know, Each card has a different fish, uh, and you get different scores for different categories, You know, the size, strength, speed, cunning. And uh, if you lead in this round, uh, you can choose the category, and if you get a higher score, you win uh, the card, no matter what scores your opponent has in any of the other categories. It's really quite simple. Spiritual top trumps is pretty much the same. And when it comes to real religion, the apostle outscores them in every category. You see how it goes? The ritual mark, I was circumcised on the eighth day, I win. Religious background of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, you can't beat that. As to the law, a Pharisee, you won't know it better than me. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. See, it wasn't just head knowledge for Paul. He got real passion too. His heart was fully engaged. Yeah, I win again. Uh, righteousness, <laughs> faultless. See, I sit here, I hear the law read, I've got no conscience. My card again. Uh, it's all very childish, isn't it? But it makes his point. He's impressive. You, you don't sidle up to the apostle and say... Uh, well, Paul, did you come to Jesus because you needed a crutch? But he can't put all of that on his CV. Well, no, he can put all of that on his CV and still discover he's got a piece missing. I don't know whether you like jigsaws or not. Uh, by and large, I hate them. I mean, once, yeah, I know you've got to get the corners first and do the outside bit. Yeah, I can do that lot. It's the next bit that's difficult. Um, and, you, you know, they get bigger and bigger, don't they? The thousand-piece jigsaw. And you've kind of had it out there, and you've spent weeks doing it, and finally you've finished it, and it, oh, there's a piece missing. You know, there's only 999 of them there, and you search everywhere, you cannot find it. And if the missing piece is the centerpiece, the key to it all, the one that all the rest of the picture points to, that is more than just infuriating, isn't it? I've never had the experience because I can never do the thousand-piece jigsaw, but you can see the disaster. Well, here it's as if Paul's found the missing piece. And he assesses it. And he does it not sort of reflecting on some hobby or a jigsaw puzzle, uh, but as a hard-nosed businessman. 
You see, there's some, whatever were gains, whatever were profits, that's the word really, it's the sort of financial uh, word, whatever were profits to me. And there were profits. Paul always insists the law is good, for example, if it's used proper, properly. Whatever were profits and gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. I don't know why an American word suddenly slips in like that, but strangely for the Americans, it's as diplomatic as the English rubbish. Um, the, the real word is far stronger. You know, it's really poo. It's the, the word that your mum never allows you to say, like shit or crap. Oh, please edit those from the recording. <laughs> but it is that forceful. My children aren't here. <laughs> I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He doesn't mince his words. And he's lived them. Because, see, it's cost him status, respectability, friends, family, freedoms to know Jesus. And he insists it's worth it. Now, you, you, you can't read these words without picking up the sense there is something priceless about Jesus for Paul. He doesn't just affirm Jesus. He has him on a pedestal over and above anything or anyone else who might give me confidence with God. The surpassing worth, the winner of any comparison, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And, you know, this is Christchurch, Cambridge, and we're on a weekend away, uh, and... Uh, I imagine that most, if not everyone here, is happy to talk of knowing Jesus, uh, of him as a piece in your life, a player in your life. Yeah, but Paul talks about surpassing worth. And when I'm battling the, the desire to be an achiever, to be a success, to be a winner, to be able to think and speak and think of myself as someone who can stand on his own two feet before God. I mean, I've been trained and educated uh, all my life to be able to stand on my own two feet. Uh, that kind of pride is hugely addictive. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus to feel that actually knowing him is more vital, more important, more precious than even being able to say, I can stand on my own two feet. And yet Paul's wanting to say, he's worth it. He's worth it. And here's why. See, which prophet? Oh, there's only one worth having. Jesus. Which righteousness, verse 9? Which righteousness? And that's not a word we necessarily use that often in everyday language, but one day we're all going to face God. And one day, the biggest question on all our minds as we queue to front up to Almighty God is going to be, how can I be right with Him? may not be a big question now, it will be then. See, what can I bring 
to make that meeting a happy one, a joyful one. And Paul identifies two approaches I can adopt, two bits of paper, if you like, I could bring with me, two kinds of righteousness that we can own. And the first is a righteousness of my own, verse 9, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, a certificate of good behavior, if you like, based on the law, based on what God wants, but it's a righteousness of my own it's achieved by me, it's been signed by me, uh, and it needs to be lived by me, which, of course, is the problem. People are still writing these certificates today, of course, aren't they? Uh, you know, people talk about scales and the good deeds outweighing the bad, and they like to think that that's true for them. I remember chatting to a young Muslim boy, and he said, oh, we believe that you have an angel on each shoulder, and one of them records your good deeds, and the other records your bad deeds. Locked into a similar pattern. And uh, Paul says, well, you couldn't write a better line, you couldn't have a better CV than I've got. And yet he's discovered another certificate, another righteousness on the market, and it's the one he's going for. Not a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness from God. See how verse 9 goes on. To be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This certificate, this righteousness, guarantees the bearer will be treated as right with God. I don't have to print it myself, it's made in heaven. Which is why it's bound to be honoured there. It's a righteousness from God. It's not signed by me, because God and Christ work together to provide it. As Paul writes elsewhere of the cross and what was going on there, he says, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. See, treated him as the guilty party, which we really are, even though he's innocent, took our guilt so we could know his innocence. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross, we say, uh, leads to our forgiveness and the clearing of our debts, and that's absolutely true. But we so often put a full stop there, whereas uh, the New Testament keeps telling me, no, it didn't just clear my debts. It didn't just forgive my sin. It gave me a righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus. It gives me a full bank account. Paul says, if you offer me these two righteousnesses, I know which one I want. It's more humbling than we imagine at first sight, actually. Paul is stealing himself and the Philippians as he writes, because impressive though his CV is, he's trusting Christ and what he did. He'll swallow his pride. He'll take his place as one of God's people on the basis that God did him a favor. Christ bailed him out. It's the only reason why any of us are here as Christians. God did me a favor. We hate to think we're dependent on favors, don't we? Most of our lives we're trying not to be. God did me a favor. 
He's not trusting himself. He's approaching that eternity-defining moment confident in the surpassing worth of Jesus. James, we'll call him James for obvious reasons, was a, a minister near where I once worked. And one day, seemingly right out of the blue, he abandoned his wife, ran away with a member of the choir. It happens. But what made it worse was that James was a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching man, strong on moral righteousness, sexual morality, quite a reputation for it. In the public's eyes, he had a righteousness of his own. As to the law, a stickler. As to zeal, a persecutor of the corrupt and the immoral. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, a pillar of morality. But not any longer. The only righteousness James can possibly have today is that righteousness in verse 9 that comes from God. That's God-given and God-earned. Should James humble himself and repent and put his confidence in Jesus, should he uh, ah, do what he needs to do with lots of things and people, James will have to face up to uh, uh, all of them. But should he humble himself and repent and put confidence in God, don't complain if God declares James righteous. Don't complain because James looked a self-righteous prig, which he did. Because if God can't do it for James, God can't do it for the Apostle Paul. God can't do it for Philippian believers. God can't do it for you or for me. Don't let's deny the surpassing worth of Jesus to someone else when we're utterly dependent on him ourselves. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. Which gain, which profit are you looking for? There's only one worth having, says Paul. Which righteousness do you want? There's only one worth trusting in. Which life are you going to enjoy? Verses 10 and 11. Well, there's only one with a real future. Paul sets out his choice first of all, and it's a striking one. Look how verse 10 begins. I want to know Christ. And that know word's a strong word, as in Adam knew Eve. Uh, nothing sexual here, but that intimacy. The idea is that conversion brings us into a union with relationship with Christ and an experience of him that grows. It involves, well... Knowing Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection in the here and now. What in Ephesians Paul described as the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. The more I grapple with the New Testament, the more clearly I see that I hadn't realized how dead I was without Christ or how alive I am with Christ. Look where this power takes me, what, what life it brings. The power of his resurrection, and you notice how verse 10 goes on, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The, the fellowship of suffering and death that Jesus models. 
innocent suffering for others' suffering. What we were talking about earlier this morning. And Paul wants to be part of that. My problem as I first looked at it is I thought, I don't need much power for that. It's weakness, not power. You know, I'd need power to go up in the world, not to go down. But to choose that life. Ah, yes. Then I begin to understand how very Jesus-like, but it'll take all that power to get me there. And not so long ago, I listened to a remarkable Chinese church leader um, Pastor Wang uh, heads a significant church and he'd been told he must attend a program of re-education to make his teaching acceptable to the state and the state would vet all leaders before they were appointed or they would act against the church uh, and it was uh, very impressive listening to him here's what he said to his church family would you rather I submit and go for religious instruction every month or would you rather they confiscate all our church property? Over 2,000 years of church history and Chinese church history, the church has always faced this struggle and this choice. It's continually been faced with this choice. What should we do? How do we demonstrate that we're a group of people who trust in Jesus? That we're a group of people who follow Jesus to the cross? How do we demonstrate that we're a group of Christians whose souls are free, that we're no longer a group of people who are slaves through fear of death? It's through bodily submission, through bodily suffering, that we demonstrate the freedom of our souls. Amen. Well, that's a world away from, I imagine, most of us at the moment. there are early signs of threats that come over our horizons too. And we face similar kinds of challenges at different levels, don't we? Sue's in her 30s now. She was converted as a student. She would love to be married and have a Christian partner. She's an attractive girl. And friends have urged her, don't limit yourself. Go on, play the field. Take your pick. Actually, she probably could. But she won't, because she knows Jesus. See, why do people choose to give up the pleasures of life? What makes it worthwhile? Uh, it's um, easier to carry on if I can find the notes, yes. It's because they've set their hearts on another. You see, he goes on about... Uh, in verse 10, about participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see where verse 11 goes, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Uh, the somehow is not doubt or uncertainty about the result. He's just unsure of the route. The details of what we'll go through before we get there, they may well be very different for different ones of us. What we'll have in common is knowing Christ. The Christ who, in verse 21, will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. You see, knowing Christ may mean share, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings now, but it also means enjoying fellowship with him in his glory then. And our lowly bodies, despised, battered, humiliated, ignored, worn out now, 
I mean, that's the trouble with growing older. Wearing out comes more frequently. I've uh, often considered, having been retired for two or three years now, that the great thing about retirement is you've got time to visit all the doctors you have to see now. Um, you know, it's, I'm very grateful if they'll patch me up for a few more years. That, that's great. But, of course, I, I know they're not going to succeed in the long term. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's just this wonderful truth that there's a glorious body ahead. I've got a, um, a blood cancer thing. It's the gentlest form of cancer, and frankly, I just take a couple of pills every morning and carry on as usual. Um, it, it doesn't seem to have affected me anything more than that. But I, I uh, talked with someone the other day, met someone the other day who's got the same, it's, it's rather a rare disorder. Uh, first person I've come across um, who's got the same disorder, she's the sister of a, an old friend of mine, and uh, we were talking and she was telling me um, about it. She's had it for much longer than I have, and some doctor, obviously, when they're diagnosed, they're given her some sort of average length of time that she could enjoy, and she's getting rather close to the mark. And you could see it dominated, or hear it dominated, all the, the conversation. Well, they may be going to discover something in this area, but it'll be too late for us, she'd sort of say to me, and, and this, that, and that. And then she said at the end, she said, of course, your job... Um, I imagine that your, your job helps you face something like this. And I said, well, I know it's not the end. I know there's going to be a future that's well worth having. And she said, yes, the trouble is I don't have a faith. But like so many, I, I wish I did. And I thought, yes, if for you, you really are thinking this is the end. No wonder you wish you could say something else. <laughs> I can. I can. And this body, worn out, disordered, will be made like his glorious body. There's the hope. There's the future. I want to follow that path, says Paul. I've not arrived, but I'm on the journey. That's what he's saying in verses 12 to 14. And the rest of the chapter is an encouragement to walk with him because it's not a solo journey. You see how verse 17 goes on? Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Join together. We won't walk this path on our own. At least we won't walk it very well on our own. We'll need the encouragement and the warnings of others. For Christ is not the only voice in town. And as the chapter goes on, he talks about some and he, he almost hates to write it, doesn't he? Uh, in um, uh, verse 18, who live as enemies of the cross. In verse 19, their destiny is destruction and their God is their stomach. They go wherever their appetites take them, food, drink, sex, money, things, and their glory is in their shame because they don't just do the ungodly things, they take pride in it. And their mind is set on earthly things. Now, list all the sort of uh, uh, horrible things you could do, and we'd run a mile. But their voice is very seductive. And the enemy of the cross is a real schemer. Uh, he'll tempt us with all of those headline things and then just drip feed us comfort. 
happy for us to denounce sexual immorality, happy for us to uh, uh, protest against corporate greed, to think we're fighting the battle. And all the time, he's just making us comfortable, making sure we'd never follow Pastor Wang, letting us keep Jesus, but never letting go of our comfort for him. We'll not lose our freedom. We'll not give up our respectability in society or denomination. Uh, we'll never leave a church building. Uh, we'll have Jesus without the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And we need each other to enjoy that. Because what is your Jesus worth? Would you surrender cherished ambition? Comfortable status, financial security, spiritual pride, social respectability. For him, the enemy drip feeds comfort. Loves to have people's minds set on earthly things. I was in Australia some years back. It was uh, early December. Uh, it was nine o'clock at night. And uh, I was with a friend. We were just uh, uh, fishing on the seashore. Uh, you know, only had our swimmers. Didn't need any more than that. It was lovely and warm. And we were on something I've forgotten now. It was either called Five Mile Beach or Nine Mile Beach. It doesn't much matter. You understand the thing. There was miles of beach. And if you looked down it as far as the eye could see, uh, there certainly weren't uh, more people than the fingers on one hand. Uh, and as we were enjoying this and... There was a little bite at the end. My friend said to me, this is why Aussies don't believe in heaven. And I looked at him and said, what do you mean? They can't imagine there's anything better than this. Ah, you see where they've gone to. Now, Deborah was telling us about Charles Spurgeon earlier. Uh, he was a great preacher, uh, but he was more than that. And he was a pretty sort of feisty, sharp-angled guy at times. Uh, he once had a couple in his congregation who invited him round for a, a meal. they just had the house sort of redecorated and redone, and they had the meal, and Spurgeon hadn't shown a great deal of interest, so he was given the guided tour, and uh, uh, they went round the house and showed everything, and you could see uh, the wife at the end, having sort of shown it all, looked expectantly at what would Spurgeon say about uh, what she'd done. And there's this long pause, and as she raised her eyebrow in sort of expectation, he said, yes, those are the things that make dying hard. Not exactly diplomatic. <laughs> Could have been very pastoral. Might have needed saying and hearing. And uh, I suspect all of us at some stage or another will need that kind of a friend if we're going to enjoy the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I wonder if this time we take a moment, uh, firstly to guard ourselves, as we look back over the chapter, what's the biggest warning for us? Secondly, uh, what would it take for us to be that kind of friend to a brother or sister around us? Let's be still. <laughs>